I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. Writing has always been the way that I kind of make sense of things. It refuses that emptiness. No matter what color of the medicine wheel you are, you matter. The next chapter. CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. In 2018, while hosting Canada Reads, I devoured Cherie Demoline's The Marrow Thieves. It went on to become an international bestseller, landing on Time Magazine's list of 100 best YA books ever, and it kickstarted Cherie's impressive literary career. She's back with Into the Bright Open, the Secret Garden remix. It's a fresh take on the classic English tale, and Cherie Demoline's interview opens the program. And it's the 10th anniversary of Orange Shirt Day, inspired by the story of residential school survivor Phyllis Webstad. Phyllis joins us to talk about her new book, Every Child Matters. Later this hour, Ryan B. Patrick interviews Edmonton-based writer Jordan Abel about empty spaces, a reflection on Indigenous land and legacy. And we revisit a conversation with David Alexander Robertson on his award-winning novel, The Theory of Crows. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. The Secret Garden is a beloved English children's literature classic. It was written by Frances Hodgson Burnett and first published in book form in 1911. Since then, generations of readers have followed the story of Mary Lennox, a lonely, self-centered young girl who finds happiness through friendship and connecting with nature. Mary Lennox and The Secret Garden get a makeover in Cherie Demoline's latest novel. Into the Bright Open is subtitled A Secret Garden Remix. It's part of a YA series that features a diverse cast of writers reimagining literary classics. Shree Demoline is the award-winning author of the blockbuster YA novel The Marrow Thieves and its best-selling follow-up Hunting by Stars. Her adult novels include The Empire of Wild and Venko, also bestsellers. Shree is a member of the Georgian Bay Métis community, and Ryan B. Patrick reached her at her home to talk about Into the Bright Open, a secret garden remix. Welcome back to the next chapter. Right. Thank you so much, Ryan. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. So, Cherie, uh, you've had a busy year. Hashtag understatement. <laughs> uh, <laughs> your novel for adults, Venko, came out early in the year. That was followed in the spring with the YA novel Funeral Songs for Dying Girls. And now you're back with Into the Bright Open, which is subtitled A Secret Garden Remix. So what is the secret to being so productive, Cherie? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'd I'd like to come up with something sort of poetic and inspirational, but I think it has a lot to do with uh, something that I write about a lot, which is anxiety. And I I sort of also always have these, uh, you know, a whole bunch of stories going on, always in the background and and, and in in my life. Writing has always been the way that I kind of handle my anxiety and I make sense of things. And in a world that is just 
really need some sense to to be made of it. Um, but I think it's important to acknowledge that the place that stories hold and sort of helping us to manage. Mm. So I understand that the secret garden holds a special place in your heart in terms of it kind of piquing your imagination. So mm -hmm. what attracted you to this remix in terms of writing a remix of the secret garden? Yeah, absolutely. So The Secret Garden, I think, you know, like a, a, a lot of people, it was one of those books that was a part of my childhood. And I think, you know, The Secret Garden does this thing, and I think I'm drawn to it for the same reason. It keeps getting redone, and, you know, we keep seeing so many different versions of the movie. Um, it talks about belonging, and mm. uh, it offers, you know, outcasts, a chance for them to access a world that's just for them and that there's something hidden and tremendous waiting if we can just get to it. It's kind of that Narnia sort of way of living where if you just, if you open the right wardrobe, the right cabinet, there's going to be a, a doorway to another world. And The Secret Garden was one of those early stories that really offered that window uh, into that kind of story for me. And I think there's something so interesting about taking these stories that we grew up with, that we studied, that became a part of our kind of societal language and, and turning them to, to be from a point of view and a different community or character or experience. Mm -hmm. And I think these stories, like The Secret Garden, they've stood the test of time, right? We know that they're sturdy. They have um, really solid scaffolding. And I think they can stand up to the shifting of narrative to be from those perspectives and communities that were absolutely around at that time. Um, you know, the queer community is not new. Certainly the indigenous community is not new. And so uh, it was interesting to me to, to sort of shift and allow the voice to come from those perspectives in that, in that story frame. Mm. So obviously um, this is a remix. I, lo I love that frame. That it's part mm -hmm. of the series, this remix classics. Is there other um, books in terms of Treasure Island or uh, Robin Hood or The Great Gatsby where they kind of reimagine re it and subvert um, some of the themes in, in the book? So what, what, what themes from the original story that you wanted to, did you want to revisit? Yeah, so The Secret Garden was, uh, you know, there was a lot of things in there that attracted me. Uh, one was the transplanting um, of a young character, a young narrator uh, into a different landscape. And landscapes always fascinate me in terms of how, you know, your surroundings influence not just what you're doing, the way that you're living, but really how you're thinking and your feelings. So the, the Secret Garden was, was, that was a central theme. But one of the things that was also interesting was uh, the, the original author Frances Hodgson Burnett, she at the, her time and her time was looking into things like Christian science, theosophy, and what they were calling these new mind cures, which of course is, you know, psychology, because she suffered with depression and anxiety. And she was looking for some kind of relief at a time when women who, who you know, had these uh, quote unquote complaints were routinely committed under sort of diagnoses like hysteria. And so she was really uh, looking into ways for how the land could help deal with depression and anxiety and mental unrest and unwellness and how belonging and, and family and your outlook could really impact your mental wellness. And so I thought this is the perfect story to, to sort of explore anxiety in a different timeline, in a different historical context. Yeah. So that said, what aspects of the original story did you feel most needed a makeover? 
oh my God, casual racism <laughs> always, yeah. right? From from the very first chapter when you open it and like Mary Lennox is, uh, you know, throwing around some casual racism about mm. servants in India. It's really off-putting and it's horrible. And I think, you know, I find uh, when racism is in in those sort of quote unquote historical or, you know, earlier works, um, when it's thrown out as like, this is just the way things are. It's even more infuriating because of course, it's not just the way things are, it's how people made them and then held yeah. on to that perspective. So for me, I really wanted to absolutely get rid of that. But I also, I wanted to keep Mary Lennox as the narrator. I, I still wanted her to be that same sort of obstinate, difficult uh, narrator, because I thought um, this is an opportunity to really make her learn. <laughs> like mm. she's going to learn today. Like I'm, I'm going to put her <laughs> in a situation in a different community where it's not just like in the original sort of moving to this remote you know, English locale and kind of dealing with, um, you know, the, the shift in who's around her and the, the weather. It was going to be about now you're in somebody else's territory. Now you're in a different community. And these are the only people who are qualified and have enough patience uh, to really teach you what you need to learn at this point and, and, and sort of really put her through those steps. You do, in fact, make a number of changes to the story, starting with the age of the main character. In your novel, Mary Lennox is 15 years old. In The Secret Garden, she's 10. So yeah. why, why did you start there? Why did you change the age of the protagonist? Yeah, so first of all, 10-year-olds um, are a mystery to me. I think young children to me, are it's like a pack of like coyotes sort of roaming the neighborhood. Like I love just watching the kids in my own neighborhood, kind of the craziness they get into, but I can't imagine what's going on in their heads. And I, and I don't really have a lot of uh, uh, memories myself to sort of pinpoint what the thought process is. I think moving into adolescence, you can sort of understand like the angst and and, and the sort of faulty logic that that is involved in that time period. I also really wanted to, of course, have a, a, a love story involved, some sort of you know romantic line, just because that's so interesting and it's such a fraught thing to happen, right? When you're an adolescent, like falling in love, oh my God, it's like the be all end all. And so I thought that would be an interesting element to add to the story. So I want to talk about love. I, first, I want to talk about the setting. Like you set this in Northern Ontario. Uh, mm -hmm. That's the setting she refer into the bright open. So after the death of her parents in this remix, Mary leaves Toronto and goes to live with her uncle in Georgian Bay. So what's she like when we first meet Mary? Yeah, so, so Mary is much like in the original. She's kind of this spoiled, but tragically isolated girl who has uh, grown up in the care of others, in the care of staff. And so her parents are kind of a mystery to her and she's used to being alone and she's um, not used to being confronted about her attitude. And she sort of, you know, pushes people away, puts them at the boundary line because that's the only way in which adults really interact with her up to this point is um, giving her boundaries and their societal boundaries. They're what's expected of her. Um, and so when her parents pass away and she's sent to her uncle's place, like in the original, you know, she suddenly uh, meets people who intersect with her own life in real ways. Right. These are adults now who actually want to know how she's feeling and, 
and uh, that demand more of her than just to, you know, make sure you keep your dress clean and you have proper manners at dinner. They, they, they want her to do better and be better. And really that just means being herself and being honest and open. And so it, it yes, I, I shifted, I kept it in the same time period as the original. So 1901, but I shifted it and I, I sent her from Toronto um, where, you know, I grew up, spent many years and I sent her to my my community in 1901. And so she is going into, um, she's going to Penetanguishene and she's going to, you know, an area which is um, populated by uh, indigenous people. You know, we were known as the Penetanguishene half-breeds uh, mm-hmm. back at that time. So it's the Georgian Bay Métis community. And these are people, indigenous people who uh, came from their original homelands and my own family, you know, Manitoba, Wisconsin, Michigan, around the Great Lakes, who uh, were sort of re- relocated off the islands and came to the shores of the Georgian Bay to Penetanguishene in the 1800s. So I put Mary in this community that, yes, it's an indigenous community and yes, they have connections to this land, but for a lot of them, you know, they were also transplanted and, and put in this this beautiful place, but it's, you know, very very wild and lush back then there were cedar swamps and and the hunting was really plentiful and so you know i wanted to give her these very reliable wonderfully generous sort of hosts but who also had their own experience of of being transplanted to this Mm. space i love that context and i love the story how it transposes juxtaposes um toronto like the bleakness of that and then once Mm. mary uh, it gets to the northern Ontario w- wilderness. She's kind of drawn to it. At one point, you write, she flew out the back door like a bird out an open cage door. Like, what is it about that landscape that it so excites her? Yeah, so she has this idea at the beginning where she, and she makes some comments about, you know, how it's so empty up here. It's so empty, you know, coming from Toronto where there's so many people. Um, and she's very quickly corrected um, by the people who are surrounding her and then also begins to feel it for herself that it's not emptiness, not the empty of the sort of quote unquote wilderness that that is mm-hmm. off-putting or scary. It's it's that it's so full. It's full of of life. It's it's full of, you know, there's so many different species. There's 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 so uh, many different plants and trees. There's the different waters. Mm-hmm. So it's about diving into that that fullness and that that really we know you know in order to to survive a landscape like that it's not about surviving and it's about you know surviving with it it's about um really uh understanding your place uh in that fullness um and so there's there's a responsibility to to be in the wild and there's there's also a great freedom um that you can take flight yeah and i think it's partly through connecting to nature that Mary begins to grow as a person, but it's also about bonding through bonding with the people around her. Like there's two characters in particular who are very important in that sense. There's Mary's bedridden cousin. uh, There's a friend with whom she shares that love, a love of nature in the actual text, the secret garden, they're both boys, but in this novel it's remixed (laughs) and they're both girls. What's up with that? Why, Why did you make that gender switch? First of all, I when you know all the stories that I have from my family um, come from the women in my family who who kept all of the stories and passed them along. 
Um, and the stories were largely about the women. And so for me, when I when I thought about, you know, okay, what do I do in this this time period? I, I you know, I've decided I wanted to move her to this location. I wanted to explore that. It was women, it was women and girls um, that populated that landscape that were making the changes and, you know, making sure that the community was surviving and thriving in that space. And so it was quite naturally that's that that's how it came. It was, it was what was in my imagination, it's what's in my heart. And and I wanted to give Mary um, the best possible chance in this mm-hmm. story. I think in the original Secret Garden, uh, you know, I mean, part of the allure is that, you know, she's isolated and she's alone and she has to learn these lessons. But I thought I want to, you know, I want to give her a better chance at success. And for me, that meant giving her, surrounding her with these powerful, uh, hilarious, sometimes broken females. And so, yeah, so that's that's kind of where where that came from. Yeah. And I think the magic in this book, Sheree, as in the original story, it's that secret garden. It's that classic, like, finding the secret space, and then it opens up, and it kind of recontextualizes, helps you understand uh, your world situation. So the secret garden, it's behind those stone walls and the locked door. And, and after Mary finds that key, it, it's a hideout, that she, one yeah. that she shares with Sophie, who's a young Métis girl who becomes Mary's partner. Uh, yeah. So I, I love how you describe this garden uh, and you retain that magic, but add your own secret sauce to things. Like <laughs> what, what, what's the source of that magic? You know, that to me, that to me, like, again, like Narnia, the secret garden was that, that space, right? And I think when you're younger, you're, you're still open enough to believe uh, in magic, which of course mm. exists, those spaces exist. We create them in the world, you know, allows us into those spaces. And so in this story, I also recognize that yes, it's 1901 and, and yes, we understand uh, what things were like for a lot of our communities at that time. But I wanted to give this story because it was also a queer love story. I wanted to give it the space to breathe and grow and exist without oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought about, you know, how do I give them a space where they can love and grow and figure out what this is, what their relationship is and who they are with some freedom. And then I thought, well, God, it's the secret garden. This is the perfect, <laughs> this is the perfect story to do that because they literally find and then carve out this secret space um, where they can live out their love story. And so so it was interesting to to put them together in that space. There's something I would call like the Cherie Demoline philosophy. It's kind of a look at the importance of a place of yeah. forming who we are, of community. Like that kind of underlies all of your fiction. And it's a big part of this book. So how how has that shaped you as a storyteller? Oh, it's everything. Uh, it's absolutely everything. And it's beautiful. And I think when we talk about belonging to a place, I'm always cognizant of, you know, people who have been forcefully removed from places throughout uh, so many different communities, histories uh, in the world. And it's often a traumatic removal. It's, it's you know, no one deciding one day, oh, I'm just going to leave like my entire uh, home and, and landscape and the narrative from where all of my stories are. But I think that also is a place, right? The removal, the in-between spaces. We, um, it's it's almost like, uh, we frantically, uh, with whatever pieces we have, whatever memories, whatever belonging, whatever um, those threads are, we frantically weave them together into a new landscape in those middle spaces, in those middle grounds. 
Um, so it's about the memories of the old place. It's about the fears of the and anticipations of the new place. And in those middle spaces, how we weave those threads together to create a new landscape of belonging. So I think even in the absence of original uh, homelands, there is um, space and we create those spaces. And so in a way, um, they're much more fraught and tense, but the stories are so much more vibrant um, because we're trying to hold on to so much. And so for me, uh, landscape and where you're from and who, where you are now is, is incredibly important. And stories are the way, not just that we map them, it, not just the ways in which we find our way back or, or we map the places and, and sort of with red ink dot the spaces where we need to avoid uh, where we can't repeat or go back to those places, but it's about the ways in which we build space and the ways in which we weave together a new landscape. And largely that's through story, because I think if you have read any of my work, then you know exactly who my grandmother is, yeah. you know exactly uh, who my aunties uh, are and were. And so you know a more honest version of me um, than I could ever put forward in the ways that I move through the world, because I am mapping for you the landscape of who I am and who we have been through story. And I think story is the only honest tool that we have when it comes to projecting ourselves into the world, because everything else is about um, posturing um, and the fact that we we live filtered through our ego. And that's valid. And yeah. especially in this world, those are the ways we have to move. Um, but when we tell stories um, and they come, they always come from a place and um, we are at our most completely honest. And while they can be vulnerable, they are also incredibly strengthening. Um, and so I've never forgotten that the way in which landscape um, um, and land and belonging, even the spaces, the bridges that we create between our old homes and our new homes how that influences the language and the stories that we live honestly by. Amazing. Sheree, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, thanks so much for the conversation. Sheree Demoline joined Ryan B. Patrick to discuss her new novel, Into the Bright Open, a Secret Garden Remix. A decade ago, Phyllis Webstad shared her Indian residential school experience. Her story inspired a grassroots movement called Orange Shirt Day. On September 30th, many Canadians will don an orange shirt to honor the children who survived residential schools and remember those who did not. Phyllis continues to travel the country, sharing her story and her message that every child matters. It's also the title of her new kids' book, Every Child Matters, illustrated by Carlene Harvey. Here is Phyllis Webstad to tell us more. My new book, I created it because I wanted to explain Every Child Matters, why we chose the slogan that goes along with Orange Shirt Day. And when Orange Shirt Day started in 2013, immediately after I was being asked to go into elementary and high schools to tell my story. 
So all of my books have been motivated by the children. My book, Every Child Matters, begins with how we as Indigenous people were before colonial contact, where we were dancing our dances, we were singing our songs, we spoke our language. We had teachings and ceremonies and culture, and we were thriving and happy. Our families were together. And then along came many colonial impacts, including residential school. And then the book shows how we weren't allowed to sing or dance. There was actually a law outlawing that. In residential school, like my grandmother wasn't allowed to speak her language. Our teachings were interrupted with our families because our children were being held hostage at these residential schools because it was law that they be there. So our families were torn apart. And then the book goes into how now in this day, 2023, about how healing has started and we're starting to reclaim who we were meant to be and who we are. I have five grandchildren and the oldest turns 19 tomorrow. He is going to be in a society with his peers who have learned about his history. And in my day, we didn't even talk about it at home. And it wasn't taught in the school. So I'm 56 years old and I hope to live at least another 20 years. So I look forward to witnessing firsthand the change that will be made in society. So with having my grandchildren growing up with this being talked about, about the truth being told and having books such as this, Every Child Matters, for not only my family, but families across Canada to use it as a conversation starter to perhaps their own conversations within their own families. And Truth and Reconciliation is not only for mainstream Canadian society. It's also Truth and Reconciliation needs to happen in our own Indigenous families and communities. So it's my hope that these books will help with that, but also with public schools, bring the awareness and the discussions. And as I say in the book, no matter what color of the medicine wheel you are, you matter in the past, the present, and the future. Phyllis Webstad is the author of Every Child Matters. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Jessica Johns, the author of Bad Cree, and you're listening to The Next Chapter on CBC Radio 1. Jordan Abel's writing and books are as much about the journey as the destination. His award-winning books include the long poem Injun and the memoir Nishga. His debut work of fiction, Empty Spaces, is full of meaning. The novel dissects and disassembles the classic novel, The Last of the Mohicans, and reframes it into a powerful indigenous story of location, identity, and agency. Empty Spaces is a trippy, genre-bending novel that explores a familiar path to arrive at new places of hope and understanding. Ryan B. Patrick reached Jordan Abel in Edmonton to discuss his book, Empty Spaces, and here's their conversation. Hey, Jordan, welcome. Welcome to the next chapter. Hey, glad to be here. So we are talking about Empty Spaces, which is a novel and a experimental novel of sorts it kind of remixes and reframes like the novel the last of the mohicans by james cooper uh let's start there what got you interested in the last of the mohicans sure yeah so the the last of the mohicans uh is a starting place uh for for empty spaces because i read this book by roxanne dunbar ortiz called uh an indigenous people's history of the United States. And in that book, she makes this really uh, profound argument, I think, about the power of fiction. And, mm. and specifically, she points to The Last of the Mohicans by James Fenimore Cooper and argues that that book was instrumental in nullifying the guilt related to Indigenous genocide in America. Mm. And I, I thought right. that was such a, such a powerful statement to make about a literary work. Yeah, that really got me interested in The Last of the Mohicans as a text that I wanted to remix, work through, and, and think about artistically. Right. So the book, The Last of the Mohicans, is a classic text in some circles. Uh, obviously, most people have encountered it or, or know it from that um, famous movie. What was your first impression or reaction? The Daniel Day-Lewis movie is like forever lodged in my childhood memories. <laughs> uh, you know, that movie is, is problematic, but, you know, the book is really problematic and it's also canonical. It's, you know, firmly rooted, you know, in the literary canons of, of America in particular, but also of North America. And so I would include Canada in that as well. Uh, and it's, it's pro problematic because it's got all of these... Uh, really frustrating and difficult settler fantasies. Um, you know, one of the things that that book, you know, is predicated on, you know, is the is the myth of the vanishing Indian, as it's known. You know, where the no noble, you know, Indian is is dying out and gifting this land to the settlers. You know, which of course is not true. <laughs> right, uh, right. You know, but that's you know the foundation, the kernel of of what that book does. Mm. So. In reframing or recasting that book, uh, in this book, which is called Empty Spaces, you explore indigeneity without access uh, to an ancestral land. So when I think about empty spaces, the, the, power, the title is so powerful, like empty spaces are typically anything but, you know what I mean? Like, so when did this title come to you? It came to me 
somewhere in the in the process of writing the first four thousand words or so, I was just I, I I knew I wanted to write about James Fenimore Cooper's descriptions of land and territory that have the settler fantasy of, of Terra Nullius. And so I was thinking about all of these descriptions of landscape that Cooper, you know, describes as pristine and beautiful and, and all of these things. You know, it struck me that of course these spaces are full of, of life, both human and non-human, and they're the the opposite of empty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. Which is, you know, where where the the title came from. Yeah. And I, I like how you mentioned terra, terra nullius. Um, so you're talking about the, the doctrine of discovery, a terra nullius, um, in terms of connecting to empty spaces. And the actual text that you write is so experimental, which is kind of like a running theme in a lot of your work. Maybe kind of set the stage and tell us what empty spaces is all about. You know, it's, it's an experimental book, but it's also, it's a deeply trippy novel. You know, it's it's a work about rewriting and returning to and revisiting. And so the the way the novel is constructed is initially, you know, it's just through endless descriptions of lands and landscape. I imagine it to be, you know, a very hypnotic kind of work that asks, it asks a lot of the reader uh, in some mm-hmm. ways to read differently and to listen differently. I, I kind of think about the reading experience here a little bit like uh, ambient reading. If you're familiar yeah. with like ambient music, you know, where you listen, but you don't listen to the same ways as you listen to other kinds of music. I, I think ambient reading might be a good way to describe the way one reads empty spaces. Mm. And I have to touch on that, Jordan, because uh, to be honest, um, this book was very challenging to read for me, um, particularly in the sense of the structure and the short sentences and the repetition as they talk about scattered driftwood and uh, the bush and black rocks and roots and muds and tree stumps and stuff like that. I really had to immerse myself into the storytelling. But but once I, I got it, I got it. Can you describe how you described uh, the structure of this book? Yeah, so the the book is structured in such a way that all of the chapters are reflections and rewritings of of the previous chapter. So the second chapter rewrites the first chapter and the third chapter rewrites the second chapter. So the process of reading is very circular. You're mm-hmm. you're constantly encountering the same kinds of sentences that you encountered, you know, just a paragraph ago or 10 pages ago or what have you. Uh, except that they're slightly shifted, slightly different, you know, upon encountering them again. So I appreciate, you know, that it, it took you a little bit of time to to find your footing. But I, I think once you do, uh, as a reader, find your footing, that it's, you know, very rewarding and interesting work to encounter. Let's take a step back, Jordan. You grew up in uh, Ontario, so you've often explored that feeling of being disconnected from traditional land. So how does your own personal experience and, and thoughts of location and identity, how does that inform this work? Yeah, absolutely. So my grandparents uh, went to the Kokolita Indian Residential School, and that's in uh, what is known as Chilliwack, BC, <laughs> uh, and and they're they're from Kincolith. This is where all my family is from in BC, uh, and I, by way of intergenerational trauma, essentially, this is the really short version. I ended up <laughs> not growing up there. I grew up in Ontario, and I have you know no geographical physical connection to 
Niska territory. And that's something that, you know, is really deeply troubling for me. Like, I want to have grown up there. I want to have existed there. You know, part, a big part of what this work is about is about thinking about what our relationships are to the land that we exist on. And, and for me in particular, it's about having no choice but to engage with land um, through fiction and through metaphor and to, and to have a metaphorical connection to land alongside or instead of uh, a physical geographical connection. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's a running theme in a lot of your work, whether it be Injun, um, where you talk, it's a long poem, it talks about racism and the representation of Indigenous people, peoples. You won the Griffin Prize in 2017 for that. Your memoir, Nishka, examines identity and location. So all of your work is kind of infused with this curiosity of what it means to be Indigenous in today's world. So how is this book, Empty Spaces, an extension of that thinking? I think that's such a great description of my entire artistic practice. You know, I'm just so invested in these questions about what it means to be Indigenous. Yeah, what it means to be an urban Niska person. You know, I I think that there are so many different facets, you know, to, to those questions and so many different angles that you can come at it from that I've just been exploring those same questions, you know, for the last five books that I've written. <laughs> and, you know, and I think I'm exploring that question in a, in a very different, different way in empty spaces, the text on the page and the book that you'll hold in your hands looks very different than my previous books. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it was a challenging read, but once I kind of immersed myself, I was kind of literally like swimming in it and absorbing it. <laughs> uh, but, but if Cooper's work, um, Last of the Mohicans, helped put forth this idea of American nationalism and painted a very specific picture of Indigenous people, how does this book, Empty Spaces, address that and counteract that? It, it counteracts it in, in, I think, the most important way, which is that it refuses that emptiness. It re- refuses to to say that the land is empty and barren and ready for colonization, and instead uh, suggests that the land is a living, breathing force that exists, that is in relation to both human and non-human beings. It doesn't allow for that settler colonial fantasy of terra nullius. Yeah, yeah. And I think we live in really interesting times to use the cliche, like if this is <clears throat> you're recontextualizing a 19th century text, flash forward to today, we're thinking of still thinking about the three R's, whether it be resistance, resilience and conciliation. How, how does empty spaces connect to all that and, and kind of amplify these concepts? You know, I guess maybe the, the first thing I'll, I'll, I'll say here is that all, all indigenous literature is, you know, in some ways are in resistance, um, in part because in, indigenous peoples, you know, weren't meant to survive. Yeah. Uh, and so that, you know, our, our writing, our livelihoods, our, our works, you know, are, are in resistance to colonial nation states already. You know, this particular work fulfills that spot, but it also in, invites a space of kinship to the land that is deeply in tune uh, with those those three R's that you mentioned, you know, and yeah. uh, and in particular, like in indigenous resurgence, I think, you know, is so much about 
finding our relationships to the lands and finding out how to be in relation to the lands. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about this book and just contextualizing in terms of what's happening today. What's your emotional response when thinking about how far we've come and, and how much further to go? Like what comes to mind emotionally when you think about that? One of the epigraphs that this book starts out with is by uh, two famous scholars, Yves Tuck and uh, K. Wayne Yang. And the epigraph is, decolonization is not a metaphor. I've always felt so challenged you know, by that quotation. And, you know, I think it's an important one to keep in mind. In my mind, one of the things that that means is that land is the root issue of colonization uh, mm-hmm. and that, you know, and no matter how far we've come, land is still the thing that's the most contested issue for Indigenous peoples and that land back, for example, <laughs> you know, is a goal. So I, you know, I really kind of feel like there's a long way we ha- we have to go still. It's uh, so vitally important, you know, in this particular moment of, of climate crisis, you know, to to really attend to, you know, how we exist in relation to lands and what that means for humans as a as a species, but also what it means as Canadians. Yeah. Jordan, thanks so much for this immersive, incredible, experimental, trippy, <laughs> genre-bending book. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. And thanks so much for the amazing questions. Well, in conversation with Ryan B. Patrick about his novel, Empty Spaces. David A. Robertson's tender novel, Theory of Crows, explores hurt, healing, and finding home. In the story, Matthew McIver and his 16-year-old daughter Holly have drifted apart. But then they set out to find the family's trap line and bring the ashes of Holly's grandfather and Matthew's father, their beloved Mosham, back to the land. Father and daughter come together, joined by their grief and love of the land. David A. Robertson is a member of the Norway House Cree Nation. He's a two-time Governor General's Literary Award winner and a prolific writer. Theory of Crows is David's first adult novel, and it won the Carol Shields Winnipeg Book Award in 2023. Last October, Sheila Rogers spoke with David about Theory of Crows before a live audience at WordFest in Calgary. This is a story about a dad and his daughter, and they're a little bit stuck in their relationship, actually. It's more than a little bit. There's a sort of element of estrangement, I guess. And where Matt, the father, always goes to for healing is to his father, mm-hmm. his, his mushroom. Can you describe the relationship that he has with his father? Um, you know, Matt is someone who, a very thinly veiled version of myself, so he's and he's been struggling a lot for a long time, and um, and the one constant for him uh, has been his father, and it, he, that's like his anchor. And so when you know when he's going through a panic attack or when he's really struggling, he'll go call his dad or he'll go for a walk with his dad, and his dad will um, bring him back. And so it, you know, and that was my dad for me. 
you know, I remember, I remember, and this is, I think I wrote about this in the book, where I, you know, at work I would, well, I had a couple of panic attacks, um, and I would immediately get on the phone with my dad and go over there, and he would just, you know, sometimes just sit with me, and his presence alone would help me breathe deeper and um, feel calmer, and it would help me, help kind of pull me back from the chaos that happens in your mind when you go through, you know, a panic attack. So I, I wanted to, you know, honor him in that way in the book. He is to Matt what my dad was to me. That's beautiful. He's also really important to Matt's daughter, whose name is Holly, mm -hmm. short for Hallelujah. Why was she named Hallelujah? This book is really inspired by a lot of different things, and one of them is music. I feel like there's so much in this book that's an homage to and like an, an honoring of music because it's played such a role in my life um, and in my work. I really think art saves lives. And I think that I, you know, I think art has saved my life, you know, and music. And, you know, when my dad died, I remember I was at the Calgary airport waiting for a plane to bring me home to be with my mom and my brothers. And I just listened to like, three songs over and over and over and over again. And that helped me get through that really acute devastation, you know, of losing your dad. And so, you know, in, the, in, this, in this book, music is something that, what was the question? <laughs> hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah, so yes, yes, sorry. So it's okay. It wasn't just those three no, songs. Isn't yeah, yeah. Just no, no, the no. Best I know. Part? Yeah, I started thinking about my dad and, and music, and but yeah. So um, there's there's a lot of bands that I've really listened to often, and I and I listen to them like, you know, on repeat. And there was those three those three songs at the airport, you know, Bonnie Vare and and John K. Sampson, and um, and there's a band that I love called the Hold Steady, and the first few albums of theirs is a are concept albums. And they tell these stories, the story, continual story of these characters. And one of them is, is named Hallelujah, and for Holly for short. And it was just a, a way for me to just say, like, I love your music, you know. And whether, you know, whether Craig Finn, he's a lead singer, reads the book at some point or not, it, it's a way for me to thank, you know, them for uh, giving me music that, you know, brings me joy and that I write to and that helps me create. And so Hallelujah comes from those concept albums that the Hold Steady came out with. And, and Holly is sort of a hallelujah, is like, wow, we're actually going to have a baby after trying and trying and trying, so hallelujah. It made sense, yeah. I mean, you know, Matt and Holly, are, um, they, they tried to have a baby for... Matt and Claire. Oh, sorry, yeah, Matt and Claire, yeah. They, Claire's they the wife. I, re I haven't read the book for a few months. Um, <laughs> It's good, right? No. Um, yeah, Matt and Claire, they've tried to have a baby for, um, they've, and they've um, had trouble, you know, conceiving, or they've lost um, ch children um, before they've been born, and then miraculously, they, are, they have their daughter, and, uh, and Matt, in a moment where it's kind of like this magical moment where she's watching, he's watching Claire make snow angels in, in, a, in a yard in the snow, and he just... And then she's in birth, labor, right? yeah. She's in labor, yeah. yeah. And he just thinks of the name 
Hallelujah, and uh, and tells her that, and she says it's perfect, and so they name her Hallelujah. Yeah, that's a really beautiful scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have chosen Etta James at last as her name, but, um, <laughs> yeah, but that would have worked. I think too. Well, I don't know what you what the nickname would have been, but uh, tell me about the relationship between Matt and Holly. I mean, I I remember my relationship with my parents when I was a teenager, and I was, I mean, I was resolutely difficult. Um, when I got really mad at my mother, I used to go up and play my violin, and I was horrible, and I would play it sort of through the ventilation system so that they could hear it, just <laughs> like that. Yeah. That's not the worst thing I did, but... but you know, there's that time when, and you write about this in the book really beautifully, going to the lake is wonderful, and everyone wants to go. And then all of a sudden, you're a teenager, and the teenager doesn't want to go. And then all of a sudden, they want to go again. Mm-hmm. But why does it fray? What do you think that's about? Well, I think, first of all, it's hard being a teenager. And I think you're going through so many things in your mind and your body that you don't understand you know, um, the emotions that you feel and, and the, just the difficulties of growing up. And then at the same time, as you're going through those difficulties and you're really struggling and you have, you know, this genetic maybe predisposition to be anxious, you know, which I think Holly has and my kids, uh, a few of my kids have too, um, because I have, you know, uh, you know, really bad anxiety. And, and so you, you kind of pass these things down. And so she's going through all those things. Um, she struggles a lot with anxiety. And at the same time, Matt has really um, pulled himself away from the family and, it, and has become disillusioned with life. And he doesn't really feel like he has any sort of purpose or there's any sort of meaning to it. And, and so as he does that, he, he fills this void in himself in really kind of unhealthy ways. And it... You know, the relationship it impacts the most is between him and his daughter. And so they they become estranged with one another. Holly doesn't want to have anything to do with them. She doesn't want to. But at the same time, she does. You know, Matt, so Matt's going through this journey where he has to recognize in himself what, what has happened in his life or what he can do to bring himself back um, for his family. Um, and to do that, he needs to heal on his own. And then at the same time, Holly, she just she needs her dad. You know, and he's not there. And um, I think by pushing him away, she feels like maybe he'll recognize that he needs to be more present for her. And so she's just, you know, everything just kind of blows up. The first part of the book, it's like, I think it happens over maybe two or three days. It's, and it's just like the complete explosion of, you know, Holly's life and Matt's life. And, um, and the one anchor that they have in their life, which is, the, which is Matt's dad and Holly's grandfather. And when that's gone... It's, uh, where do they go from there? You've said that Mosham, the grandfather, has died. Mm-hmm. There's a journey that they're yeah. going to go on. And it's very much directed by the grandfather, by Mosham, mm-hmm. because he wanted Matt to go to his trap line in Norway House. Can you describe Norway House, first of all? Um, so Norway House is my home community. It's where my dad was born and raised, and it's this beautiful community in northern Manitoba. It's built along the shores of a little play green lake. It's just almost like ethereal, just gorgeous body of water. And 
there's these sections to it where there's like a town section and then south of the lake. It's like a traditional reserve. There's so much space and life, forest. And, and then ways up north from there is where my dad grew up on the trap line. Um, but it's just this beautiful community, um, a really strong community. And there's a lot of beauty there that I think is hidden that people don't know about. And one of the things I wrote on the trap line for as well was I think people have a misconception maybe of what reserves are like and what life is like on reserve. And there's a lot of struggles there, but there's a lot of beauty. And um, I think one of the things I wanted to do is introduce people to the beauty of that community through this book. I want to go there, but I also feel well, as though... We'll take you there. We're I would going. like to go there yeah. with you. That would be wonderful. My, my great-grandmother was born in Norway House, mm -hmm. and, um, and her parents lived there, uh, the Christie and McTavish family. And I've, I've just always wanted to see what it was like, but David, reading your book, I feel as though I have been there. And it's very vivid. It feels really cinematic. And so they're on this journey, they're canoeing, mm -hmm. and they're going to take Mosham's ashes to the trap line. But you're throwing a lot at them as they go. Yeah. I, you know, in a way, I was inspired by um, Mowat's story, uh, Lost in the Barrens. And it's a, it is a journey story, an adventure story. It, you know, in a, in a way, it turns into... But yeah, you're right, uh, Matt's father dies. And... You know, when my dad died, one of the things I we talked about before he died was he. There was another trap line that we wanted to go to of his that was lost to him. He couldn't really remember where it was. That's where he spent most of his time. You know, as a as a child growing up on the land, and so we we always talked about trying to find it. And then when he died, I thought, I want to find it. And and then I had this like, almost just like this dream or this vision of bringing him there uh, and just spreading his ashes there. And I don't think I'll be able to do that, you know, just because my mom, you know, rightly uh, wants to put him where he wants to be. But this was a way of bringing him there for me. And so, yeah, so they go on this journey to try and find this lost trap line. And as they do that, you know, Matt's not equipped to really live on the land. He's never done it before. Hall Holly's just there to be with her dad. And she kind of takes control of things in, in a lot of ways because that's her personality. Um, but yeah, they, you know, they risk their lives to bring uh, those ashes home, but also, I think, to find home for themselves, too. David A. Robertson is the author of Theory of Crows. Sheila Rogers talked to David about his novel at a live event at Calgary Word Fest last fall. That is it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews. Thanks this week to Olivia Pasquarelli, Ryan B. Patrick, Barb Carey, Laura Antonelli, Emily Ciarvesio, Will Yar, and the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, comedian Brent Butt is here. His novel, Huge, is a page-turning thriller set in the world of stand-up comics. And Eva Crocker joins us to talk about her book, Back in the Land of the Living, about millennial life in Montreal. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.